Listen, everyone. Live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! We continue trick-or-treat with the Boo Crew. Surprise episodes all month long of October with no set release schedule so that we can pack as much Halloween fun in as possible. We hope you are having a great time and enjoying the haunts and horror movies and chill in the air wherever you may be. And now, your creature feature presentation. We are joined in person by one of the greatest film composers of all time and a massive influence on pop culture, music, and the horror and fantasy genre. Playing three rare shows at the Hollywood Bowl October 26th through 28th. The 27th is sold out. Ticketmaster.com to get yours. It's an absolute humbling honor to bring you an incredibly special episode 27 already in progress. It's showtime. Come, come, welcome. You realize that I've always just wanted to be an announcer. My real, my real goal in life was to be able to say, and now an HBO original movie. That's the only job I've ever really wanted. And now... An HBO original movie, Army of Darkness 7. This is Danny Elfman conducting a seance with the Boo Crew. Won't you join us? What is this? Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. And do your kids dig this stuff? Oh my gosh. It's hard to keep them out. See, <laughs> my house is the opposite. Um, you know, people always ask me, so what's it like your son growing up in what seems like kind of a, a bit of a Victorian uh, kind of horror collection? <laughs> but it's mostly like archaeological stuff. That's and, cool. But a lot of dolls, a lot of busted oh, up dolls. Wow. That I've collected. It's stuff I've collected for 40 years, you know. And I was saying, oh, no, I had two daughters. They were used to it. They were used to it. It's all good. And one day, it turned out my son, when he was about 10, he goes, it's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> and even still his friends when they stay over the house they won't go downstairs by themselves they go really come on you guys are 13 no, it's like you know they, creepy you know. dolls are creepy <laughs> they don't like universally creepy yeah well I, I have all the things like that i used to be terrified of you know because hands i was uh, oh. terrified of hands oh. now i've got hands all kinds of hands like bones real bones a lot oh, of bone wow. stuff and taxidermy nothing wet right <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the rule <laughs> that's I've a lot of, yeah i've been offered a lot of like uh you know pickled punks <laughs> as, uh, they're called and it's like no 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 it's got to be totally dry right. <laughs> coming into my collection do you have anything that's like haunted i have six uh shrunken heads mm. and wow. each of them when i got them because there was a point where I was getting kind of a number of them sent over from Canada, this collector, <laughs> and uh, Tim Burton was look, you know, looking at them. But although each one I brought, I would bring them back, and my Guatemalan housekeeper, who I've had for many years, she had to approve each one. Because oh, wow. she would look at them and she'd go, no, 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 send them back. <laughs> She's like, I'm not working. Yeah, and then the next one, she goes, no, he's fine. He's fine. He could stay. Oh. I was like, I just went on her, you know, her vibe. 
That's great. So That's funny. funny. Oh. Yeah, we took our kids to the body exhibit, and then did you oh, ever? Yeah. I've seen several around the world in different places. I didn't see the big exhibit when it was here. I would have liked to have. Yeah, we saw it in. It was my, Vegas? Yeah. Yeah. There's one here too. There yeah, is one here. There was one here for a while. Titanic yeah, for a while. Yeah. And the, the Vegas thing is a permanent installation, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And she cried after. Oh yeah, oh. she was like, yeah. she, traumatized her. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime like she's not behaving, I'm like, you want to go see the. Horrible. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I just for, for my son, I just go. You want to go back and see Hereditary again? Because <laughs> <laughs> he loves horror films, and that's the one that kind of did him oh, in. Oh, turn speaking of, turn speaking of turn around and look, look on top of the piano. Do, do you recognize that? The bed? Yeah, yeah, and the person inside. Oh, wow. It's from Hereditary? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, he's got a phobia about ants. Oh, oh. Ants crawling that out movie of like, had the heads. That, that movie that, had that. an ant wrangler on it. Credited <laughs> <laughs> on the credits. <laughs> yeah, it, it's we like... Talk about that. That, like, put him over his, like... <laughs> So, yeah, the ants yeah. were intense in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> if you got a, like an ant phobia, you know. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like it? Did you like Killer Hereditary? Oh, I loved it. And he loved it too. He said it was one of his favorite movies, but he didn't want to see it again. I, yeah, it's one of those. Well, we tried watching it again. We can't really make it through it from beginning to end again, though. It's intense. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Um, <laughs> it's pretty, <laughs> you know, right from the get go, this is not going to be fun. There's right. not gonna be <laughs> <Yeah>. No fun. <laughs> no laughs. No laughs at all. <laughs> I'm gonna start. We've hey, been uh, recording, but I'm Trevor, gonna, uh, yeah. backup. Yeah, the backup is more than rolling. I think I'm good. Yeah, it's always good to see levels moving up and down. All right, perfect. Uh, all right, joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy Studio is one of the most well-known and celebrated film composers and musicians, perhaps of all time. He destroyed the conventions of the music world and injected into it a newfound creativity and excitement back in 1979 when he led the band Oingo Boingo, and nothing was ever the same. Since moving on from that project in 95, he has to date created the scores to over 100 of the best-known and most-loved movies and television shows in history, close to 20 of those with Tim Burton. Titles like Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, Sleepy Hollow, Men in Black, The Frighteners, Alice in Wonderland, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Tales from the Crypt, The Simpsons, only scrape the surface of what he has accomplished. You will get the rare chance to see him live as he will be performing three shows at the Hollywood Bowl October 26th through 28th here in LA to celebrate 25 years of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, reprising the singing role of Jack Skellington for the music he created to the now iconic 1993 film. He'll be backed by a orchestra. orchestra and choir as they perform the score live to film conducted by John Malchuri. He conjures the soundtrack to your dreams. The music of inspiration ignites the fuel of imagination in everything he does. Four-time Oscar nominee, Grammy and Emmy Award winning, Mr. Danny Elfman. Introduction like that, I, I better just leak quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> and now Danny and Tim Armstrong will perform a duet of Sally's song. No. <laughs> uh, so let's go back to what inspired you as far as your darker persona goes. Some of the films that attracted you to the darkness. Well, I grew up on horror films, literally. You know, it was in the 60s. Parents didn't know, uh, I got to watch my language, what the, whatever we were ever doing. You know, because that was the thing about that era. You know, we could have been out having like satanic masses or whatever. And they'd go, how was your day? Oh, fine. Um, 
every weekend, I lived in Baldwin Hills here in Los Angeles. Yeah. I went to the Baldwin Hills Theater. You know, we'd walk. Nobody ever got dropped off. It was just a whole different era. It was like boys would just walk. And first you're just one, then two, then four, then eight, then 12. And as you converge on the theater, <laughs> you're hundreds. And yeah. in the theater... They played almost only horror, science fiction, and fantasy because they knew what we wanted to see. And it was two movies every weekend, different movies. That was kind of my early film education. It's like every single weekend of my life was two movies at the theater. And then occasionally they'd show like a musical or something and we'd all go then to Culver City. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no, no, they got two horror films. <laughs> so it all kind of started then. I have them all up at my house in a special rack and Tim was just over the place and he was like looking he said it's all my famous monsters of filmland oh. magazines and forrest j ackerman was my god you know at that time he was like the thing and he was the publisher of this magazine called famous monsters and i said oh it's him i didn't find this rack. I built it for these magazines, you know, <laughs> it's just perfectly proportioned to hold, That's amazing. Yeah, the magazine collection. So, you know, that was my youth. It was horror movies. And as I said, until Psycho came out, my parents never knew or cared what I was watching. So, you know, I was seeing the head that wouldn't die and, you know, a head's arms getting torn off and people being disemboweled, all kinds of, you know, one of my favorite eyes without a face, like faces oh, getting yeah. pulled off. And they never knew. That. How was the movie today? Oh, this was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> what did you see? Oh, it's just some goofy films. And, um, and then suddenly it was like, oh, we're going to see Psycho. And I said, no, no, you're not going to see Psycho. And it's like, what? It's like the only time my mom ever took interest in uh, what I was going to see, the psycho, because that attracted so much attention. And because it was a sexual psycho, psychological, fan, you know, uh, not a fantasy, uh, you know, story that suddenly was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like arms getting torn off, heads getting torn off, but no sex, yeah, right. you know, a shower yeah. scene, no naked bodies. And so I was really bitter that I got like banned from seeing <laughs> oh. psycho and I had to wait to see it later. That that movie was a big deal because it was the first time they'd shown a toilet in a movie. Oh, there are so many things, you know, like yeah. you can't believe how many ridiculously inane things. It was the first time, you know, showing somebody's back in a shower without clothes on showing a toilet. Even the opening scene with the guy in a bedroom with his shirt off. There was something about that. It was some way it was presented that was new and controversial. Maybe it's because he was sitting in bed with his shirt off. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. <laughs> shirt off. I mean, Robert Mitchum does that. But he's not in bed. Well, she's just wearing a bra in that opening scene. <laughs> she, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And she's wearing a bra. In right. And a bra scene. color changes too, right? It does. Yes. Yeah. Black to white. Well, when she, yeah, she changes her mind after she throws away the, or decides that she's going to return the money. She's wearing a white bra, I think. Something like that. Yeah, but it's no accident. Like, yeah, yeah. Not, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's not a continuity. Right. <laughs> well, she goes from black to white. So I think it's black in the beginning when she's evil, mm -hmm. and then she wears a white bra. Well, that, yeah. that would be perfectly hidden. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I grew up on. I was terrified of dolls, which is why I've got a huge <laughs> mega doll collection <laughs> now, because, um, and I don't know why, I was frightened by two things, uh, amputations and dolls, broken dolls. And when Whatever Happened to Baby Jane came out no. and uh, the ad was a broken doll head, yeah. it's like, oh, I couldn't look at that. I'd like, my brother saw me, you know, he'd keep an eye on my older brother to torture me. He'd see me like skip the page. <laughs> Next thing I know, the page is out. And there was one in, the, in one of the Monsters magazine of a movie called Tormented of this woman's head on a table talking. And that scared me. 
And so I'm on the phone once and he's doing something and I turn around and there's the head. Like, uh, right next <laughs> to him. He loved doing that. But I beat him at that. For example, I took that head and I hung it up on my wall facing my bed. So it was the last thing I saw before I went to sleep. And the first thing I saw every morning was that head until oh, oh I took away all right, the power. Wow. Yeah. yeah. He's powerful. Yeah. I could laugh at it and go, you don't own me. It's oh, good motivation. Yeah. And then the amputations, I think, came from one of the first horror movies I ever saw was about four or five was the beast with five fingers with Peter Lorre and as this hand would crawl around and it was like killing people so now I've just got this huge collection of hands from all over the world and wax hands and anatomical hands from the 17th and 1800s and oh, wow, um, a couple of real you know from old university collection skeletal hands and uh, and mummified hands and i've never found a glory hand that's the only thing i don't have what's a glory hand yeah. the glory hand is the hand of a, a hung man oh, oh. Wow. yeah mummified and uh, why is it called a glory hand because it's got power baby <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the most unique things i have is a hand a mummified monkey's hand monkey's paw which i got in bamako mali west africa oh my uh, god have you made a wish on the monkey's paw no man <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you don't do that but I, I still have it and i think it's kind of like where all my whatever luck i have good and bad all comes from what? Monkey's ball. do you have wow. this stuff like in display cases how do you have it set up yeah tables and displays yeah. and this and that it's not very organized not like a museum right well speaking of museums forrest ackerman right had the acker mansion yeah he had gone through a couple of those rachel you talked to the man at one point and went over and saw one of the acker mansions right yeah actually at the one up in las Vegas area the hollywood oh, so as yeah. i actually did a little interview with him and talked to him about oh, uh, science nice. fiction because he invented the word sci-fi and he gave us a tour of his house and oh how great. great i met him at an awards thing where he was there and ray bradbury was there and it was wow. like meeting the two of them was like oh wow what a thrill because <laughs> yeah. you know i read a lot of ray bradbury as a kid yeah, too what's he like yeah. what was ray bradbury like i just remember him as being cordial and sweet and it was i was just meeting my idols and they were yeah. they were like pretty old <laughs> And, you know, they were just like happy to have people appreciating them, <laughs> I think. <laughs> they may have just been going like, oh, man, it's got to get this asshole. <laughs> just nod and smile and he'll go away. <laughs> so anyhow, that that kind of was my attraction. It was just coming from there. I was a monster kid. And so was Tim, although we never met as kids. You know, he was on the other side of the hill. Right. And uh, but, you know, we both grew up on the famous monsters. And, you know, he looks at the collection. He knows them all, knows all the, oh, that's so the covers. Great. And when I met him the first time in 85, his kind of idol was Vincent Price, you know, and he made a documentary about Vincent and mine was, and you know, he did this Vincent, that animated thing. Yep. Yeah, really totally. Great. And mine was Peter Lorre. It kind of defined our relationship for the next 30 years because uh, Vincent Price, if he ever was in a movie with Peter Lorre, Peter Lorre would be tortured. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Vincent Price would be the one administering the torture. <laughs> so since you're a fan of dolls, what do you think of the new horror, like Annabelle and Child's Play? No, it's fun. I see all those 
because my son, who's yeah. 13, Oliver, he loves those films. So I've seen, you know, all the Annabelles and Conjurings and all the Insidious, you know, we, we see all that stuff. It's fun. I just don't, I'm not scared of dolls anymore, but I, I always <laughs> like Chucky, you know, when Chucky is great. I have a, an incredible, one of my, another great find is a West African poster of Child's Play 2. Oh, wow. wow. And it says, Chucky is back. <laughs> But it actually says folk, F-O-L-K, folk you, mama. Chokey is bad. Wow. And it's a hand-painted thing, because that's how they did it there. They wow. would do hand-painted, like, movie posters. And, uh, in fact, I, I once took a picture when I was in Africa. No, no, I think it might have been in India later. They do a lot of the same thing there, or Pakistan. And uh, there was a Terminator 3, and it was before Terminator 3 was out. <laughs> and I sent it to Jim Cameron and said, they beat you to it. So. <laughs> I mean, the Pakistani version is just going to kill you. Is there a movie that you saw where you first remembered noticing the music? Yeah. The first movie that turned my head around was uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. It was a Bernard Herrmann score, and it was the first time I noticed there's music in this and it's not just there. You know, when you're a kid, you hear music in a movie, you take it for granted. It just, it's there. It just goes with the movie. Suddenly I realized it wasn't and I started looking for his name and I realized that if a movie had Harryhausen and Herman on it, Ray Harryhausen and Bernard Herman, it was going to be my favorite movie <laughs> that year. Wow. So, you know, because then there was Journey to the Center of the Earth, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, Jason and the Argonauts, yeah, so Voyage of Sinbad, yeah. yep. you know, those are all these great collaborations. Bernard Herman, I didn't realize you know, he was kind of slumming at that time, you know, doing these kind of B-movie budget, you know, science fictions. But he wrote these incredible scores. But The Day the Earth still is just a classic to me still. The, the music is fantastic. And it made me aware that somebody created the music. And I think I was about 12, 11. And uh, it kind of made me a little bit of a film nerd and film music nerd even starting then. So then when you get to Psycho, what did you think of his score in Psycho? Were you well, terrified by my, it? Or the, were you... fir the first Hitchcock movie I got to see was the next movie, which was The Birds, which had no oh, score, yes. of course. I had to wait till I was a teenager and now going to the retrospective houses also, which Los Angeles was a great place then because you had the new art and the Fox Venice each played two movies a night for like a dollar or two to get in. So, you know, aside from my childhood as a teenager and young adult, I would usually see four or five, six movies a week in the theater. And that's where I really started learning, okay, Hitchcock and going backwards for where I started in The Birds and going backwards to, you know, his earlier films and his collaboration with Herman, which I had been unaware of when I heard Psycho in the theater for the first time. I'm glad I saw them all in the theater and not on TV because I was yelling my son and his friend, they were watching The Shining last night at the house because he'd seen it several times, but he was showing his friend and they're listening quietly and she's leaving. She says, it really wasn't that scary. I said, first off, you can't watch it on TV. You're starting, <laughs> stopping, right. pausing. You've got lights on and you're playing the sound that barely, you know, you could whisper over it practically. I said, that's not how you watch a scary movie. I was happy for the fact that, you know, it was actual screenings and 35 millimeter prints and hearing it as it was supposed to be. Yeah. I still think that's my favorite 
Psycho is my favorite film score. You did a score for Anthony Hopkins, uh, well, Hitchcock, didn't you? Oh, Hitchcock, yeah. What was uh, that like? You know, did you use any influence? No, there was, there was very little Herman-esque film. I mean, that was a kind of a decision because yeah. the director, he didn't want to make the movie like a Hitchcock right. movie. Mm. But, you know, he obviously loved Hitchcock and I loved Hitchcock. And so it was just kind of a romantic homage. Yeah. And uh, it had a lot of great stuff about the making of Psycho. That's an incredible score. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. It was a fun movie, too. You know, nobody saw it, but it was a fun one to work on. <laughs> it's that great scene when, when Psycho, when Psycho is playing, he's in the lobby. Yeah, he's in the lobby. He's orchestrating. He's conducting as, yeah. as it's playing, and he's waiting for the reactions, and then he can hear that reaction come through, like, big, and it's just great victory, because yeah. I had no idea that he really was up against a wall. He had to mortgage his house. Right. He co-financed it. You know, he his really wife put, and him actually finally edited it together. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, they did the whole thing together, really. Uh-huh. I didn't realize it was such a personal project and it meant so much. Very few directors ever are in a position to where they put their own money in their own film. You know, it happens, but it's not too frequent. Yeah. Especially, yeah. I mean, he, at that stage in his career, he'd been around since the 20s. Yeah. So to think that he was still in that position. Yeah, he was like, he, I think when he directed, yeah. when Hitchcock directed Psycho, he was probably like, 63 maybe yeah a little older he was at that point where they were probably going well maybe he's past his prime now yeah, and right. you know suddenly it's like he's doing television and that's going to be the rest of his life and he wanted to make psycho right. and nobody would finance it there and, like, and he definitely wanted to have it black and white right yeah he wanted and, to have it black and white and there was already this was the color movies had been happening for a while right. and i think you know they probably read the source and the script the studios were just like no way this is just, <laughs> this is so not something we have any interest in thank you mr hitchcock <laughs> yeah bring us something you know that we could get behind and we'd love to make a movie someday <laughs> i think there's a story like some 20 some years later where um william friedkin wanted uh, him to score uh, the exorcist oh and he kind of brushed them off until the man go f off yeah but and it's you know that's just as well too because right. for the exorcist it wouldn't have been the right vibe you know the vibe he went with which is first off almost no music because right. i saw it again with my son recently and i was saying you know the score is very famous and it's like it's almost no music it was like <laughs> right, yeah. two cues right. in the movie like three and it's like right. i'd forgotten that's like i remember the score you know tubular bells so well and i just forgot the fact that you really remember it almost from hearing the album the soundtrack <laughs> barely from the movie as you tumbled into the transition of being a member of a rock band to film scoring and orchestration when was the first time you had an opportunity to stay in front of a full orchestra and here's something that you composed in your studio well i mean i never heard an orchestra up close until peewee's big adventure really oh wow yeah the first cue which was the bicycle race in the you know in the beginning that's the first time i ever stood in front of an orchestra and heard what an orchestra sounded like wow and they were playing something you wrote how did that feel it kind of hooked me yeah then and there saying you know I don't know if I'll get more opportunities because you, you got to realize when I wrote Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I never expected anybody to hear it. I was taking an attitude towards, as you just said politely, F it. <laughs> Frack it. <laughs> I don't care. You know, I'm just going to have fun with this. Yeah. I mean, I thought Tim Burton, they, they were crazy for hiring me and, and Paul Rubens played Pee Wee. What was it? How'd you transition? I love that score. I love that opening scene. How'd you get the orchestra to do your idea? Well, okay. So being a band guy no it's because I had a career before Oingo Boingo and that's where that came in because it was a musical theater troupe the Mystic Knights we had 12 musicians and I 
started writing. I taught myself to write for them. First, I learned to transcribe music because we did a lot of classic 30s big band arrangements and I wanted to get them just right. And and then I started doing my own compositions and, and that's where I taught myself to write music. And then I started the band and it's like, oh, all that was a total waste of time. <laughs> and, and that was seven years, seven, eight years of my life. You know, I was performing with them and we started out on the streets. You know, we played for past the hat money for years. I was both the, I played violin, which I just taught myself and trombone because I found one in the <laughs> wow. studio wow. and uh, I learned to breathe fire. So I was like, you know, it's the fire breather, trombone, drummer, and uh, violin player. And were you doing it like on the streets of Hollywood? <laughs> yeah, basically? but I did teach myself to write and minimally to orchestrate 12 pieces, but not a whole orchestra. But then when Tim came to me with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I didn't know why. I thought they wanted a Oingo Boingo song. And I was like, you don't want a song. You know, hey, you should do, I think you should do the score. And I was like, hey, really? <laughs> <laughs> you realize I'm probably going to F up your <laughs> really bad. And um, he's like, no, I think, you know, I think it could work. And so I went home and, you know, he showed me the film and I wrote a piece of music. But then the first couple of times I, I I had to write it down. There was like a seven year gap of something that I barely knew how to do in the first place. It's not like, cause I didn't take any music lessons ever and I didn't play any instruments as a kid. So I didn't start anything until I was 18. And it was like, okay, how did you write this piece, which was a pretty complicated piece that you wrote for the 12 pieces. And writing for orchestra isn't that different than writing for 12 because you're not writing, let's say the Pee Wee Orchestra was 65 pieces. You're not writing for 65 players because you've got 20 something violins and, you know, violins right. and cello. So you're writing for string one, string two, you know, um, cello, brass. Writing for three trombones is not different than writing for one trombone, and writing for four French horns is not different than writing for one. So it actually, you know, once I dived into it, it wasn't that hard. I just had to remember what I used to do so, in the last days of the Mystic Nights when we were doing these very ambitious shows, you know, with orchestrated, pretty crazy stuff. So you get the 64-piece orchestra in front of you. Are they, are they in front of you? No, I'm I'm in the booth because I'm not conducting. You know, I right. barely knew what I was doing. And for me to conduct, it just would have been a so, nightmare and a half. So Lenny Niehaus, who actually scored a lot of uh, Clint Eastwood's films for years, they gave him the studio, Warner Brothers, uh, say, we have, have Lenny conduct for you. And Lenny was, for a first conductor, first time out, he was so great. He was just really patient. And uh, a lot of the stuff, when I got it to the stage, it needed some finessing yeah. would be an understatement. <laughs> so and are they doing like, how many passes are they going to do? Well, Can a lot, do, do, you know. They, they could do a few takes. Yeah, especially then, because I didn't know how to put all the nuances into the written music then in terms of how to play passages. You know, I knew how to get the music down, but, you know, my orchestrator for that, my first orchestrator was the Wingo Boingo guitarist. It was literally, it's like, Steve, I'm doing this, believe it or not, I'm doing a score for a you know, peewee movie. And I like, do you know anything about orchestration? And he said, I took some classes at UCLA and I go, that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there was a lot of learning curve on that. Really my first five or six or seven films. Same on Beetlejuice, the orchestra had a real hard time. It seemed really simple to me, just like, and they would go, kind of swinging along, you know? And it's like, no, no, no. It's really rigid. It's really fast. Do you ever go in the room and go, hey, it's constantly like this, you guys.
Yeah, so basically I'm looking at the screen, which is still where I sit. I still have no desire to conduct ever. And I want to look at the movie when I'm hearing my music, because sometimes I'll see something, how it's interfacing, and I'll, I'll make some adjustments based on what I see. And, you know, if you're conducting, you're hearing, but you're not really watching. So I want to watch the movie, and I'm on talkback, so there's a lot of talkback. And at a certain point, I walk in there, and I'll just say, okay, here, let me explain it as best I can. And, you know, fortunately, the musicians in L.A., they're so good. You know, they would go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, we get it, we get it. They would kind of pick it up. It would take a little bit, but uh, then they would get it. During this time. It takes so much patience to do well, this. So were, were you very hyper-focused on this? I learned that I really could stay, you know, because I'm not a hyper-focused person naturally. I'm like real short attention span kind of person. But when I'm writing, I could stay really focused for a really long time. I could stay on it. And that's what I learned even with the Mystic Nights is that when I was transcribing a difficult piece, if I listened to it, because we didn't even have the ability to repeat, there was no digital recording. Right. I was listening yeah, to yeah. records of like uh, Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington band arrangements, and I'd want to get every note of it right. So to listen to a passage, and I learned I can freeze it in my head. And then if I take time, writing music is just math. It's really simple. It's quarter notes, there's eighth notes, there's 16th notes, and there's triplets. <laughs> and, and occasionally you're tying two eighths together, or you're tying a quarter to an eighth. And it's like, hey, really? It's not that much. It's just counting and breaking down a count. So once you understand that, the writing actually was surprisingly easy. It was hard to figure out what I wanted to do. But in those days, I would work out a demo. I'd demo I'd play the whole thing. I played it for the director. And then I'd start writing it down. Because okay. we didn't have MIDI notation then right. either. <laughs> so my first 20, 25 film scores, I had to write every note of it down on paper. Wow. And I, I'm even glad I had to do that, even though I worked 16 hours a day at that time. Has it, it gotten easier with technology now, yeah. obviously? Now I only work 14 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, but can you stack? Do you ever do stacking instruments because of all the tracks you can use on uh, well, Pro the, Tools? The, or, or like I don't use logic. Pro Tools. I use a thing called a digital performer. Mm. Okay. But I'm still working up all the orchestration that the director is going to hear. Right. I get a facsimile of the piece. And now it's a very different, you know, you can't just play a tune for a director. Like Alfred Hitchcock, all he ever heard from Bernard Herrmann was just a piano piece. Here's your melody. Mm. Now they really want to hear it almost exactly like so i you know i'll work up a facsimile of the piece that sounds as close as i can to right. all the parts in the uh, midi you could get close huh yeah but uh, nothing you know, sounds like strings right no uh, nothing sounds like strings are real instruments well especially strings you know especially in a romantic score or a, a sad score it's really hard to explain like these strings I promise you will sound so much better. <laughs> you mentioned the film Hitchcock. That director was really nervous hearing the MIDI strings. He says, but will it be passionate? Will it, will it be romantic and passionate? I goes, I promise you it will. Yeah. And he was nervous and nervous and nervous. We went to London. The first cue, the first day, they play the opening piece. And he just relaxed. And he stayed relaxed for the next days. <laughs> it's like once he heard what real strings sound like, he said, oh, that's all I needed. <laughs> Those nuances of the attack and decay where you can't replicate that with the computer. It's got to be done. Well, the, the thing that know. the, unfortunately, that the MIDI strings can't do is vibrato mm. uh, oh, right. because right. there's just no way to do that well. And so you're just hearing a straight tone in what's going to be a really warm played with a slow, minimal vibrato. That's right. Which gives it a really sweet yeah. sound. And there's just no way to mimic that. If you're doing a piece with a lot of short strings and short 
action cues you could make sound really good. Right. What about a movie like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for instance, where a lot of the sounds were based on your own original electronic samples? Was that all done in your studio? Yeah, yeah. That was just really fun because, you know, a lot of crazy sounds and my own samples and then, you know, using... 25 passes of my own voice all the time. And uh, <laughs> I remember there was a point where my studio is below this kind of ballroom. It's this weird basement. It's in a basement, but you can hear it through a vent. There's like an air vent and you can kind of hear through and she'd be walking by <laughs> and she'd be hearing it's like just what the f is going on down there she's used to hearing orchestral sounds yeah. and like big drums and, and things and she's all she's hearing is this falsetto <laughs> singing <laughs> and it says uh oh I think Danny's lost it So did you basically build a sample library out of your voice for a lot of that? No, I just sang stuff, all or? those parts live. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just the whole song. I just, yeah. I just started doing it for the demos. And as I did it more and more, it was the same process that went with Nightmare Before Christmas. I did it just for, here's the idea. And then at a certain point, Tim was like, for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he says, you know, these sound, well, let's just use these. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just kept laying down more Oompa Loompa voices. Right. <laughs> and, uh, in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, I didn't expect to perform any of it. You know, I just wrote the 10 songs, but in the process of demoing the 10 songs, you know, 10 of them and getting more into it, there was a point where we went into the studio, Tim and I, and uh, we laid down all 10 vocals, except for Sally. I brought in somebody to sing Sally's song. Obviously, that was the one thing I couldn't do. <laughs> and, uh, but I did all the voices, all the parts, you know, and all of Jack Skellington at the end of it. I said, Tim, you know, I'm starting to get really attached to singing this part. And he goes, don't worry, you, you got it. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was going to be like, and I have to turn this all over to some effing, <laughs> some effing singer, that, you know, and I was going to effing poison his effing coffee and like make sure he doesn't effing survive. And after three of them go that way, they'll go, you know, maybe Danny, maybe you ought to do it. We're just running out of singers. <laughs> Now, I'm I'm surprised. Did it ever come up? Chris Sarandon does an amazing job as Jack Skellington. The speaking voice, was that ever on the table? You know, we talked about it and I did some readings for him, but me and the director, we, we just didn't see eye to eye on that. And at a certain point, it was like, you know what? I'm just going to stick with what I like doing. It was getting to be kind of a pressure and not fun. And the singing, I just loved doing. Fortunately, in Nightmare, he sings about as much as he speaks, so I didn't feel like I was getting shortchanged right. <laughs> at all. And uh, I just enjoyed singing the parts so much that I slowly got into this corner of like, I, I can't let anybody else do this. Right. Oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones and emptiness began to grow At what point were you in your relationship with Tim Burton when Nightmare Before Christmas started to become a thing? Was it 
near the beginning? Was it like, where was it in relation to like Batman you know, or, or something? Was it Well, I mean, time? it was after Batman and Edward Scissorhands and in between Batman 1 and Batman 2, it was a lot of stuff going on because it was a two-year project and I'd never worked on a film more than three months. And so it was like a whole new thing wow. for me. But when I started, there was no script. The script wasn't together. There was It was untogether. And, and Henry was up in San Francisco and they're ready to start shooting. And it's like, we didn't know how to start. And finally he said, let's start with the songs. Let's do it that way. And literally, I lived uh, during this couple of month period, uh, I was renovating <laughs> a house <laughs> we were talking about earlier. I go. lived in Topanga Canyon. My house was all torn apart. And so I lived at my girlfriend's house in Burbank. And uh, he would come over and he would just show me drawings and tell me a little bit of the story. And I said, just tell me the story. And he would say, well, okay, Jack is wandering out in the forest and he comes to these three trees and it's going to be like this. And, and then he comes through and he, he sees this new place and just snowflakes, everything is, and he would just tell me all animated. And it's like, okay, okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. And I would shoo him out. And every three days I had another song. I mean, I wrote all the songs in 30 days. Were any hard to write or it just no. flowed really easily? I was, you know, it's the first time writing not for Oingo Boingo. And I was so happy to be writing about what I, I knew what I was supposed to write about. You know, when I was writing for Oingo Boingo, I'd be sitting down to write and I'd go, I don't know what the F, um, <laughs> you know, what's on my mind. I don't know. Maybe nothing's on my mind. But, you know, I would just things that were aggravating me or things that seemed ridiculous. But, you know, it was more of a process of figuring out what do I want to sing about? What do I want to write? But here I knew it was a story. And it was like, that was so fresh for me. And Tim would describe each story and then show me, you know, of course, the illustrations. It gave me such a clear picture that I could just really hear. And we were in agreement that we didn't want it to sound like a broad. We didn't know what it was, but we knew what it wasn't. It wasn't going to sound like a Broadway musical. Mm. So knowing that, and I wanted it to sound contemporary and old at the same time. Like it could have been written in the 90s, or today meaning the 90s, mm -hmm. or it could have been written in 1940. It could have been written by Gilbert and Sullivan in 1889. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I had all these kind of influences of Gilbert and Sullivan, of Kurt Weill, you know, from a, could have been from the 20s in Berlin. It could have been, you know. And so all of those things were mixed together. And Tim was open to all of that. And there was no pressure to like make it a Broadway or a commercial sounding tune that people are used to because then I would have been out of luck. Then right. it would have just been a job. A true collaborative process. Yeah, it was from, a true collaborative right process. And Tim had bits of lyrics, like things laid out on the, especially on the earlier songs. So he had already some lyrics and I would like, oh wow, you know, that's really like a first verse is right there. And it would just like launch me into the rest of it. And uh, so, you know, he, he has some good lines in there. One of my favorite lines in the town meeting Perhaps it's the head that I found in the lake. <laughs> that was Tim's. <laughs> I just can't take credit for that. <laughs> Did you keep anything? Any of the puppets? They gave me one jack. So I have a jack in a kind of a plastic case. He has to be restored every so often because he's kind of melting. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine, right? And yeah. Keep him refrigerated. Yeah. <laughs> we learned that in Warner Brothers, they keep all the gremlins in a refrigerator and the corpse bride stuff. Yeah, yeah the that's, corpse bride stuff are in the same fridge. That's yeah. great because, um, you know, I, don't, I can't keep Jack in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> I have not built a refrigerated vault. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> you may want to put on a jacket. <laughs> it's like Christmas Town for right. yeah, Exactly. There you go. Do you or Tim, I'm interested in this, have a backstory for the character of Jack Skellington in terms of what he was before he died or did he die or does he just exist in Halloween Town? Nobody as knows. Anybody <laughs> died. I, I, I smell a sequel coming. Yeah. Then, you know, I should also mention that uh, my girlfriend whose house I was living at who was hearing all the stuff as I was writing it was Caroline Thompson who finally at a certain point was like God damn it you guys I'm right here I'm right here and I'm so ready to go I've been listening to these songs day in day out day in day out and uh, finally Tim said yeah okay right she wrote Edward Scissorhands correct yeah that's where we met wow for 20 years with Oingo Boingo you're playing these legendary Halloween shows at Universal and yes Irvine and I was there I was there right your Halloween was booked Right? Your Halloween, yeah, Halloween was booked forever. And even though you're in what is described as one of the greatest live bands in the history of rock. No, well, I don't See, that's the thing. You've described yourself as a very reluctant performer. Well, first of all, how did you manage to be such a great performer, shying I, away from the stage? I'm not convinced about my performing well. or, or, <laughs> my, or my vocal abilities, and nor was I ever. Wow. So I was always a reluctant singer, you know, because who would ever want to sing my songs? So <laughs> kind of was one of those singers that nobody else is going to sing this shit. So right. if anybody's going to do it, it's got to be me. And uh, I was that kind of singer. Wow. You, you mentioned you, uh, you would busk out in the street for like how many years? Uh, probably of the seven or so years we were together, it was probably half the time. So that you must have learned some stuff out there. You know what I mean? As performing, communicating. Well, I don't know about that. I learned that it's really hard in the winter in New York to play a trombone. Because <laughs> that mouthpiece yeah. is cold. It's really cold. You can get your like lips stuck on that thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Would you have people like watching you for a while or like maybe no. like, 10 minutes? The show, yeah, the shows were like 15 minute in and out before we got arrested. That was the thing. We, <laughs> wow. You know, there'd be a crowd in front of the art museum here, movie lines, and we'd be in, do this whole kind of 10, 12 minute show, pass the hat, make the money and bolt out, you know, because at a certain point we're going to get busted, which we did once and at a parade, a Labor Day parade or a Memorial Day parade in Venice. And uh, we're playing because we always started with the drum, full drum section, right. everybody on these like marching drums. And um, my brother, he put me on a rope because I kept wandering in front of him. So he ties my drum to his drum. So I didn't wander off too far. And um, at a certain point, I'm like starting to go crazy on the thing. And there's cops you know, coming. He's like, everybody's like, quiet, quiet. And I'm like, bam, 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 bam. And he's like, what are you doing? You're going to get his hand. Bam, bam, bam. And then he's trying to get away, but he's tied to my drum. And, um, and sure enough, in these crazy outfits, uh, you know, reptile suit and all these things. Things. You know, we got arrested. <laughs> but they didn't actually book us. Okay, yeah, I was picturing the jail. Like so. drama, like you go on a corner, start jamming, and there's a local team of entertainers be like, yo, that's my corner. Is any of that like <laughs> no, we, territories? There wasn't any territories, and there were so many of us. Right. You know, nobody had a chance. Right. That's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, what are you going to do if you got like a flute 
and you're at a certain corner or a guitar, and suddenly anywhere between eight and twelve people pile out of a van drums. <laughs> so what was it then that convinced you to take the stage again in 2013? I never expected to, and I never really missed it. Right. I mean, you know, I have to say, you know, if I missed anything, I missed like the early club days, you know, with the Whiskey A Go-Go and the Roxy. You know, those, oh. those are the performing days I liked the most. It was real sweaty and hot, and I loved that, you know, just that feeling of being drenched and uh, the connection with the audience that's right in front of you and pushed almost right up against them. I loved that. But then as the concerts got bigger, I still really enjoyed it a lot, but I, that part of it was gone. And I found that I was always just intimidated by like arenas and stuff like that. I, I wasn't like a natural. I was always intimidated by it. And uh, my agent, uh, Richard Kraft, he approached me with the idea of the box set that we did for the 25th anniversary. And then after that was out, he said, this is the perfect time. I'll hit Danny up. I can get you a concert at Albert Hall, 15 suites of 15 Tim Burton movies. You'd have to do suites. You'd have to spend the work doing it. But he knew that I'd been listening to everything to make that box set because I right. never listened mm -hmm. to anything I work on ever. And listening to those to put that box set together was really the first time I'd listened to half that music since I did it. So like I knew Alice in Wonderland because I just finished recording it, but Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice and Batman. It's like, I hadn't listened to those recordings since. Like, oh, wow. They're on heavy rotation in this house. <laughs> Our kids are in it. Into yeah, it. Are into so it. it was shocking, but I had it all in my head because I spent three months putting that box set together. So wow. I was really having to go through like old tapes, demo tapes, recordings, lost recordings. We were pulling up tapes out of like salt mine vaults that we thought were lost, trying to find old masters, oh try, trying to find little outtakes and stuff like that. So it was the right time. And I'd always hated when I heard other orchestras like play bits of music. They never got it right. I once listened to a performance of Batman and it's like, no, they just don't. It's not even close to the way it's supposed to be. They, you know, they gave it their best. And I realized that to do suites, concert suites, I had to reorchestrate, redo it all because it's different for a concert stage than for a film orchestra. In a film orchestra, there's microphones over all the instruments. So you can have like a big section playing and then you want to hear just uh, the flutes or the clarinet. Well, you just push up the fader. Mm -hmm. It's what I was used to recording with a band. You know, it's like you everything's on faders. For a concert orchestra, suddenly those flutes are gone. You know, it's like, all right, that's clearly that's not you know how you orchestrate for the stage. So I had to redesign everything and it was fresh in my head. And I figured, OK, if I'm ever going to do it, I should do it. So once again, I was stuck with three, you know, three months of now creating uh, these suites because I really had to figure out what pieces do I want to include. I don't want it to be just the best of, like, all the main titles, you know what I mean? Like a film hit parade. Mm -hmm. I wanted each thing to have something well-known, something that I really liked that was a lesser-known piece, that kind of something might have been buried in the middle of the movie, and then write some little section somewhere in each suite that was new. And uh, so there's a bit somewhere. I mean, the only exception was Alice in Wonderland, which I just recorded and we just played this one suite top to bottom. Everything else had something else That's cool. that hadn't been heard before. When he brought that to me, he says, I don't know, you think you'd want to like do some live, you know, when you get to the nightmare suite, do some Jack Skellington. I was like, yeah, well, yeah, sure, whatever. I didn't remember saying that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a year later. And I'm doing, putting together a night before Christmas and I was like, oh shit. And I, and I called Richard. I said, did we once have a conversation about me singing this stuff? He goes, yeah, you agreed to it. <laughs> I saw the well, poster. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's a bad idea. I haven't sung in 18 years. I don't know. With, I don't think I could do it. And he goes, well, it's too bad because it's already been billed in London. 
and you have to do it. Oh. <laughs> and um, I really had this moment backstage before the first performance, because first off, the whole idea of the concert with 15 suites is a lot. I didn't know if any of it was going to work. I didn't know if the whole thing was going to be a disaster. I had visions of being tarred and feathered in London, <laughs> you know, or hung from a lamppost. <laughs> and... Uh, and then I'm singing for the first time in 18 years on top of it. And I had stage fright massively the whole time I performed. Now you can imagine after an 18-year break, you take that and magnify that 18 times. Wow. And I'm sitting there at the door, like waiting for my cue. And it's like, I'm just going to like go to a bar. I'm just going to do one of those things that you read about in, you know, in biographies. <laughs> <laughs> he was never seen again. <laughs> exactly. Like blues singers and country singers. You know, where is he? Uh, hunting the bars all over the country. And... <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter was doing Sally for that show and she's like sitting on the floor and getting into characters all floppy and she goes Danny what's the effing problem <laughs> I'm sorry I have to do this right otherwise you have to beep it out no it's no. okay it's okay yeah. and then she said she just looks at me she goes fuck it right and I was going yeah thank you the story of my life <laughs> is that yeah. and here I'm all like bent out of shape and I just went out there and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life because I hadn't sung in so long. I'd never sung Jack Skellington live. I'd never performed in London. New audience, knew everything. And the audience from the first song, I mean, I'll be forever grateful to them because they were like right there. And I remembered what it was like, you know, in some of the best Oingo Boingo days when you feel like, you know, I'd go blank on lyrics. I'd fuck up all the time. And the audience is like, we're cool. Don't worry. We got you. And that's the vibe I was getting from the audience. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, if you have to stop and start, if you have a problem, we got you. And it was such a great feeling because I was so insecure about it. And the response was so warm that it just, I don't even remember the first two songs. I was just like up in the air and then suddenly it's like, oh, I'm okay. I'm on stage and I'm halfway through, you know, whatever, five songs and, and I'm going to make it. So after that, it was like, all right, this is fun. Because it's not like going and doing old songs. You know, they're old songs, but I'd never performed them. I never even sung them as entire songs. They were only sung in the studio, which means a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus. And some of them, like, what's this? It's really hard. Yeah. I go, it's like, <laughs> right. I, I didn't build in any places to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. It's like, I wasn't worried about it because, you know, it's like, okay, finish that chorus. Stop. Start up again, do three, and, and you're back in the second verse. And I realized that I enjoyed it. And so after doing kind of a handful of those shows around the world, when they approached me to do Nightmare Before Christmas, I thought, yeah, that would be fun because I get to do a couple songs that I, I missed not doing in the Elfman Burton show, like a town meeting and making Christmas and that kind of stuff. But what I didn't realize, the, really the hard part was all the time you have to wait in between songs. Like I'd never done theater now I see, oh my God, this is what it's like in a real theater. It's like you do your thing and now there's a story going on and right. you have to just wait. And that waiting, that's harder than anything. I mean, the first night we did it there at the ball, it's like I'm sitting there. Oh. <laughs> you know, the singing I'm enjoying, but the in between the singing, I'm like, oh, 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 yeah. I'm just sitting here, not doing anything. And I'm not used to that. And that was like fucking you know, head exploding. Did your mind yeah. wander all over the place? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like, it's just like run, bolt, flee, yeah, fight, right, yeah. fight, fight or flee. You know, yeah. When you walk out on stage, when I walk out on stage with Oingo Boingo or an Elfman Burton, you know, I'm just there to own the stage. That's all I know. So to, to own keep it, stopping it. Yeah. And then yeah. keep stopping it. Yeah. It gives it you time like, to think. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You notice the, your nerves, you know, we all have the nerves before you perform, but when you perform, do you notice they go away for a while? Or do your nerves stay with you? You know, both. It's hard to say. You know, sometimes in certain times, the, you know, I would just kind of get over, get over it. And then yeah. sometimes I just, the whole time I'd be feeling this pressure of not screwing up. And, and the stopping thing, that sounds difficult. Really that, difficult. Yeah, yeah. Cause you know, as you know, with Oingo Boingo, they were they, at the end, they were like two hour plus shows. Yeah. There's no big 10 minute drum solo for me to go backstage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Have a drink and a smoke. And walk back out there. <laughs> it's just like I was on all the time in the Elfman Burton shows, even though it was a shorter thing, you know, for Jack stuff. It's like, I just powered through it. So it was like how I would approach being in a band, you yeah. know, just power through the songs and you go on adrenaline. And I knew there was tons of adrenaline because all the songs sounded way too slow. All oh, right. I was, because I know that they weren't playing them too slow. Yeah. But there was like, oh my God, the first time out there, <laughs> there were few who denied what I do. <laughs> From the best, there's no town so And I'm looking at John, the guy said, pick it up. What, what? And then afterwards, I listened to the recording and said, no, it was right on tempo. But to me, it sounded really so, which means my adrenaline was like, I get this adrenaline when I go out. It's like that kind of stuff that, you know, when a mother lifts a bus it's like, how did that happen? <laughs> you always see a band come back from a tour and they're playing it like 20 beats too fast because <laughs> they've been picking up speed every show. Yeah, you know? Picking up a little bit of speed. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's true. And that was also the hard thing about Nightmare because on the Elfin Burton show, if I really had a lot of adrenaline, I was performing them faster because I could pick up the tempo. Yeah, exactly. The essentially, John would be following me. And so we might start somewhere, but at a certain point, if I get to the chorus the, the second verse and i'm like okay well, here's where we're going you know right. he's just gonna like follow where i'm going but in nightmare we're in sync so it's like he's looking at me like you ain't yeah <laughs> how do they, they do that how do they sync it up is he literally listening to a click track that's been put onto the film so they make sure yeah there's a track of uh markers and there's uh a thing called streamers and the streamers are constantly telling him he's right in time, he's right in time, and that's the moment. And oh, then he goes wow. next. And he's so good at this stuff, John, that um, we had a night uh, last time we were at the ball two years ago where we lost sync. We lost picture, and the oh. orchestra lost sync, and he lost sync. And I was looking at his monitor, and it was blank, you know, because his monitor is really all of his the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And I let it go a little while, and then I say, you know, I'm, I'm on stage. It's like, I'll go tell them. So I have to kind of like, <laughs> off stage. Yeah, I yeah. go to the, you know, there's the control in the back. I said, you know, there's nothing on stage right now, right? And they're looking at me like, what? They didn't know. They're looking at their monitors and the things going, but it's not getting to the musicians or to John. Damn Oogie wow. Boogie. And <laughs> exactly. So um, I go back out again. It's like, oh, I'm back. I'm not singing. I'm just back. So I'm going, John. Uh, do you want me to stop the show? They could reset. And he goes, I got this. Wow. wow. And after about five minutes, the video came back on and he was like right there. Oh, wow. and, and he gave me this look of like, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, that's right, like, bitch. For, for, for a conductor, that's a conductor's way of like, who's the motherfucker? Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You and me. That's the best. That's the best. <laughs> and, uh, and he really, you know, he do, he's done a lot of that. He's done a lot of like live shows. You know, he was the conductor at the Hollywood Bowl for 10 years. Oh, wow. And the artistic director. And so, you know, he just got a lot of experience. Yeah. Wow. And so I don't think there are a lot of guys who could have held that together <sighs> in sync with the movie, not drifted more than one beat and uh, for that many minutes of music and then actually That's be right back on again. Wow. Yeah. So was the whole genesis of the idea to make it an annual thing? I mean, it started, it was no. 2015 was the first year you did the full oh, orchestra yeah. and everything. No, I, did, I thought they were crazy. I, I wanted to book it at Nokia or somewhere else and they were like no Hollywood Bowl I said there's no way there is no possible way you're crazy you're just asking for a, a total demolition of you know it's going to be an empty house and then you know I got the call it's like saying well we just put the second night on <laughs> really you're kidding and then, we were there and it was like one of my favorite yeah. concerts and we took our daughter and she was just she got to hear all the songs that she loves live it was so good well, it wasn't supposed to be an annual thing, but it was weird because between the Nokia Center and then the Hollywood Bowl, it's like, I'm back to doing Halloween shows. <laughs> like, I, I did 17 years of Halloween shows. Everybody knew where I was going to be every Halloween. Yep. And I hated that. It's like, <laughs> right on the money. It's like, oh yeah, we know where you're going to be. See you. People seem to say, see you on Halloween, man. I go, how do you know? <laughs> Maybe I'll be somewhere else, but you know that I won't be because nope. I'll be at the Universal Amp. Universal Amp Theater or Irvine Meadows. Or Irvine Meadows. So, yeah. you know, so fuck so, you. <laughs> it's a done deal and um so for this it was started turning to go like i don't want to get back into that yeah. thing you know I, I mean it's why it was hard for me to be in a band in the first place the regularity i hated touring because i hated playing the same songs every night it would drive me crazy so i could only handle nightmare and or elton burton because you know we do it like three times a year it's like that's fine <laughs> you know at that pace i could do it for a while <laughs> you know i don't have to tour it for like a month solid where i'm doing the same songs because that for whatever reason i just have no tolerance for that i never could have been a broadway or a theater actor doing like six or seven or eight shows a week i never could have done it i would have been two weeks i would have wanted to kill myself <laughs> <laughs> on the road when i was with the band three months is as much as i can handle and i wanted to like that's it. We're breaking up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're not playing on Halloween, what do you do on Halloween for well, fun? Like last Halloween, for example, because I said, you know, it would be our last. And I, I meant it at that point. You know, we went We said, you know, I'm not against doing the show. So we played Mexico City. The Dio de wow. Suerte. Oh, yeah. Mexico City. It was actually really great. Wow. It was a fantastic time. It was right after the earthquake and people were really emotional. And it actually felt like a good time, weirdly, to be there and kind of offering up some little bit of positive energy and something for them to really get into. And they really are into Nightmare down there in Mexico. The audience oh, yeah. is so good. So that's what we did. And then I was like, well, you know, we're not doing Hollywood Bowl anymore. And then they called me and said, you know, it is the 25th anniversary. <laughs> I hate to mention this, but it's the 25th. I said, you can't say I'm not going to do it again. Retire for one year and come back. That's so lame. Everybody's going to hate me. <laughs> Everybody's going to hate me. They're just going to go, you're just, he's just an asshole. And, um, and then I realized that, uh, well, you know, 
25th anniversary. It's quarter century. It's like, you gotta, gotta do it. I couldn't do the 25th anniversary in Kalamazoo. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like if I was going to do that somewhere, I realized it would have to be like the three cities were, I mean, we've gotten really warm responses to that, but you know, Mexico City, Tokyo, and Los Angeles, uh, the audiences are amazingly great for anything from Jack Skellington, any of the songs and any of the, all the music. And so we already did Mexico City. Tokyo didn't have a Halloween thing. I was like, okay, I guess I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> but we are hoping to take it to Tokyo early next year, which I, I also really love. LA has definitely got Danny Elfman in its cultural fiber. That's what do you think it is? That's unfortunate. For what? <laughs> no, no, no. So not saying much for the no, cultural we fiber. All, we all disagree. We all disagree. I, I mean, it was in 2016. The city designated Oingo Boingo Day. They had a big ceremony, April 20th. I Richard Blade was there. And I, you know, I only found out about a... that like literally the week before it was happening. Really? Yeah, and I was like, what? <laughs> Nobody even told me about You're this. You're just such a part. You've you become know who such a part of the first person to play Oingo Boingo in Los Angeles was our friend Jed the Fish. Yeah. yeah. Jed the Fish was right. the one who broke Jed Oingo cool. Boingo. Yeah. We made a four song EP ourselves, self produced it, and uh, we made a couple hundred copies. And every now I'll see one will turn up on eBay. Like we had a stencil, we just spray painted <laughs> nice. stenciled the covers. And Jed got a copy of that and he picked it up and started playing it. Awesome. And yeah. it was really all that is what triggered so everything cool. for us was K-Rock 1980, 79, right around there. It was either 79 or beginning of 80, I think. And Jed was playing it and suddenly it was playing a lot. Just everything kind of happened from there. So do you think that this will be the last we'll see of Jack Skellington live for a while? Or do you think? I don't, you know, I don't know. It's like, I never intended to do it even this long. Yeah. I, I don't want to make it my thing. Right. You know, for me, it's something that I'll do it while I enjoy doing it, but I don't want to do it one second past the time where I'm really getting a lot of like juice from it sure. just to make it a gig. I don't want it to be a gig. So I really can't say I'm still enjoying it. We still will do shows like we're going to Paris next year and hopefully London. You know, I enjoy taking it to new, whether it be Nightmare Before Christmas or Elfman Burton with the Nightmare songs. Taking that to different cities is fun. It's a real challenge learning with the whole new orchestra. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what that process is like. It's pretty insane. The movie has just become such an iconic piece of film history, really. Well, look, you know, the reality is uh, we lucked out because when the movie came out, I was so sad and disappointed because it really didn't make much of a dent and Disney didn't understand what it was and I don't blame them. Looking back in hindsight, what did, you know, this was not The Little Mermaid or Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast. This what's what they understood. This yeah. was like an animal that made no sense to them. It really broke the rules and yeah. broke ground. They did a little bit and it kind of had its moment, but then it was done. It's like two years of work and it's like, yeah, it's just done. And it developed its own second life. And that's incredibly lucky because very few movies, obviously the most well-known would be, you know, the Rocky Horror Picture Show got a second life. Amazingly, The Wizard of Oz got a second life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. wasn't yeah. popular when it came out. And uh, Donnie Darko, to a certain degree, you know, maybe uh, with the Coen brothers, the Big Lebowski, you know, there are certain movies that kind of got a bit of a second chance, but they're so rare. I mean, the chances of that happening is so just like one in a million that it was when Tim and I were in Tokyo doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the premiere, and we were just tooling around the toy shops because, you know, that's what we do there is go to, you know, look for toys. You know, I also collect <laughs> Japanese tin toys. And there was Jack and Sally and Oogie Boogie stuff everywhere. 
And Tim was like, I've never even seen this merchandise. <laughs> like, this is a whole other thing. And then it turned out there was a club in the city that was a Tokyo club dedicated to Nightmare Before Christmas. It's really like a thing there. And I think that's where it started to sink in that, you know, this thing hasn't really died. Right. <laughs> yeah. And to Disney's credit, you know, went back and started saying, you know, it's still out there. Then they understood. By then it was like, okay, we get it now. And they started kind of getting behind uh, re-releasing it and, and doing more stuff. But it just took them a few beats. And understandably, it took them a few beats. I, I remember the one preview we had for kids, you know, and I think kids are coming in to see a Disney musical <laughs> and they see this thing and it's unfinished and there's pencil sketches mixed in with the animation and they hated it. <laughs> oh, no. And I remember that I was in the elevator with the producers and they're all talking and they're saying, well, kids hate it. <laughs> and then I did a, a press junket in Florida and the press junket, every single interview asked the same thing. said, so it's too scary for kids, right? I go, no. Santa Claus is tortured. That's what I've heard. I go, he's not tortured. He's fine. <laughs> you know, like he's even the good sport about it. <laughs> right. and, uh, and they kept saying that. And I, and I would always answer it like this. I'd say, are your kids scared at Halloween? They go, no, they love Halloween. Then it's not any scarier than that. It's Halloween. And they'd go, really? But it, there was this thing out there that when it opened, it was like, not for kids, not for kids. And that's why I love it now when people's kids, you know, I meet them and they've got like a six-year-old say, look, Bobby wants to sing you something. And he'll sing like a little bit of a song yeah. of, from Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> oh, wow. It's like, wow, the kids definitely understood. I knew they would. I mean, I wrote the movie, all the songs I was playing for my daughter, Molly, who was about 10 at the time. And she was like totally into it. She was like nine or 10. And she, she basically approved every song. <laughs> awesome. out there. Kid approved. Yeah, exactly. It was kid approved. And, you know, she wasn't like a big horror fan. Like she would then later become as an adult. But at that point, you know, she wasn't as a nine-year-old. She watched what nine-year-old girls watch. And she loved the, the stuff she was seeing from Nightmare, the songs, the images, Tim's graphics. And I felt like, this isn't really, this is just a bad rap that it doesn't deserve that somehow started, you know, before it came out. So to get a second chance and uh, it really feels great. If, if there's anything I've worked on in my life that failed and I've worked on many failures, I have those 105 so pictures that I've done, more than half of them, you know, are failures. And so you just have to live with that. You know, it means I've got 50 films that were out for like a minute <laughs> that I worked really hard on for like three months and then it's gone. It, it always hurts. But this one, even though it wasn't like a, that kind of flop, it did hang in there for a couple of months. It hurt the most of anything I'd worked on that it just wasn't going to reach an audience and become part of their thing. And then for that to happen really 10, 15 years later, it's just like, Ah, oh, that's, you know, it's like a real gift. Sure is. And now, I mean, it's everywhere. Of course, Disneyland and the Haunted Mansion layover that they do and all this amazing merchandise all the time. It's yeah, yeah. It really is something. It's fun. You know, it's the happy thing that happened that could have not been in my life. Edwards. By the way, I think about that when I go out there to, you know, and still perform it. Oh, yeah. It almost didn't happen. Right. None of this could have happened. Oh. So I think of it as like a little bit of a, a gift the fact that I'm asked to do that, the fact that I'm filling the fucking 
Hollywood right. <laughs> three shows yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a movie that wasn't even successful yeah considered successful it's like that that's pretty cool I shouldn't just like I, I can't just ignore the fact that that's like a gift Edward Scissorhands has an anniversary coming up right the 30th anniversary probably in a, in a few years we're getting somewhere close wow yeah right must be I know you've gone on record in the past saying it's one of your favorite scores that you've worked on would you like to do something special for that film when we get to that anniversary I've actually talked with a few orchestras you know we did uh, Alice in Wonderland live after, and then Batman has a live version for orchestras and we We've talked about doing uh, Edward, possibly. So it'd be great if there was a a live concert of Edward, Edward Scissorhands, or maybe in sync with picture. It's fun music to play live. I mean, doing the Edward suite in the Elfman Burton show is really kind of was my favorite part, putting it together. Well, I mean, the Nightmare Suite was easier because I'm singing songs. Doing the Batman and the Edward suites were really fun because Batman, I got to like, I had two movies to pull bits from and create this really weird mashup of stuff. And, uh, you know, Edward just like to hear it again. It was, you know, when I finished Edward, it was one of those moments where it's like, God damn, there can't be a sequel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is, I don't, I'm never going to get to do this again. <laughs> you know, sometimes a, a score goes away where it's like, ah, I'd give anything to do more variations on that. I mean, I really enjoyed doing a second Batman and a third Men in Black and just being able to take something that I I've already dug my teeth into, but continue to twist it and turn it and take it to different places is really fun. And then we got Dumbo coming out. That'll probably yeah. be the next project. I leave next week to score. Wow. Done. Yeah, I leave I leave on Thursday. Unbelievable. Yeah. And you got a concerto that's going to be yeah. performing, uh, I think, in April, I believe. Uh, right? Northridge, yeah. Northridge. Not quite Los Angeles, but uh, it'll, it'll make it all the way here. Wow. What is that? We're twisting arms. So the violin concerto is starting to get picked up more. And we've got performances of that now in uh, I think there's eight performances this year which is good and I'd love to see 20 next year it's a slow thing I'm breaking into a whole new world yeah they don't want me there Oh, really? That's cool. Is there there pushback? That's how I got, you know, when I started with a rock band, it was like that. When I started in film, it was like that. I'm used to it. I mean, I almost welcome that kind of hostility. Right. (laughs) Going into a world where the people in that world are saying, "Uh uh-uh, no. Yeah. Just turn around and leave. And I could say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a realm that film composers traditionally have not crossed over until and you've done it with well, rock bands into film is hard sure exactly that, that yeah. Was one, yeah. that's why I got so much resistance there they were like yeah you probably just sing everybody would tell me for 10 years I was up against you don't really write your stuff you have a ghost writing your really oh, yeah. I heard you just sing your melodies in a tape recorder and that somebody else transcribes it and then they turn it into the score oh jeez oh, you know? wow. and the fact that there are composers like that that exist and I understand why they think that but that fuel was good for me i thrived on i'll show the motherfuckers yeah and um i'm now to be at that again it actually feels good it's like as a successful film composer i've got huge resistance from the classical world it's like okay you know if you've done some films that's okay but successful you guys don't belong here it's not your world and that they hate the fact that you know we get paid you know, <laughs> more than they do. I, I would hate me too. <laughs> you know when you get paid to write a concerto? I mean, if I took the ten percent that my agents earn on my film and took ten percent of that, wow. that's what that was my fee for my violin concerto. It's like a whole other world. Wow. You know, if I make enough money 
to upgrade my plane fare, my plane trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like I want to go first class. I'll pay for it for myself. Wow. And it's like if I could break even on the commission just on, <laughs> on the flight, it's like I consider well. it good. But I love it. I'm doing more. What is the fuel for doing more? Is it to just prove that you can do it? No, I I need to do it because you know in film I have to write for the film, and there is a point where I find myself going crazy. You know, I want to cut loose. You know, so when I sat down to write the concerto, there's no restraints at all. I just loved being able to do that. I can just go to places where I could just never go to in a film. Or there's moments sometimes in a film where I go into a vibe, a thing I'm really enjoying, but I only get to do it for two minutes and the scene's over. That's it. That's, you know, that's all I get to do. <laughs> and here, you know, I could find something I'm really into and then just go with it and go with it and go with it. And um, I love the challenge. It was super hard. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life, actually. I like that kind of thing. And I have to break down doors to get it played. I like that. I'm trying to get my next two, three commissions. I'm, I'm resolved that I'll do a concert music commission every year now for as long as I'm alive and writing and able to. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. That's, great. That's incredible. Have you heard any great new scores from like horror movies? Like I know we were talking about Hereditary. Have you been impressed by? Oh, yeah. You know, especially, I mean, I don't like to talk about other composers scores because then eventually it gets to the conversation to the ones I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) I won't go there because I don't ever want to trash yeah, no. or criticize another no, composer. No, it's all just taste. All. It's all subjective and uh, nobody agrees on that stuff. But like just in the last year, there were two horror movies that I really loved, which was uh, A Quiet Place and oh, uh, yes. Hereditary. And they both had great scores. Hereditary, you know, almost, was this a score or is this sound design or somewhere in between? I like the fact that it was a, a really a hybrid between sound design and score. And uh, Marco Beltrami, who's a composer I really like, did A Quiet Place. I love that. Yeah. It's that's like, great. I was so jealous. Here's a movie with no dialogue. Right. (laughs) You know, it's like, I just wanted, I wanted to kill him, except that I really like him. You know, and he's a friend. (laughs) But other than the seething jealousy that I was saying, I really thought it was a great score. And you did really good. (laughs) I'm really curious. What's your creative process when it comes to scoring? Do you have a ritual routine? Like, do you always sit at a keyboard? Do you pick up a guitar, perhaps, or some random instrument? Do you start off? It's 95% uh, keyboard, Keyboard. you know, because I have a template with all my orchestral sounds and I'll spend uh, some weeks customizing that template for the film that I'm going into. And it it must have 250 sounds in it, you know, broken down into sections. And uh, then occasionally there's a movie comes by where I get to pull out the guitar and do really bad guitar playing. <laughs> and I love doing that. The last one was uh, Girl on a Train, which is actually a score I really love doing because it was mostly performed. You know, it was a little bit of orchestra, but it was mostly like just uh, meat on synthesizers and guitar. Yeah, that's a really fun and, score. Oh, I had so much fun doing that. I, li- I like it when I get to perform a score. You know, it's the same with The Circle and a lot of Gus Van Sant's last film, uh, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Mm. You know, a lot of that was also just messing around. And But when I get to pull out the guitar, it's like there is a kind of guitar that I'm good at doing. And it has to be, the part has to call for really bad. Guitar. <laughs> 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 you know, I'm writing uh, actually a concert piece for a chamber orchestra, 12 to 16 female singers, two percussion and uh, two electric guitars, bass and drums right now. Oh my God. That'll be somewhere in the next year that's going to happen. I won't even, I won't say where yet because right. I know where I think I might be, but it's not 
a done deal and I don't want to announce it and it doesn't happen. But if it doesn't, I'll take it somewhere else. It's really pretty wild. It's, it's so exciting. Cool. Yeah. It's very exciting. <laughs> we were talking earlier about Mystic Manor. Oh yeah, Mystic Manor. That's kind of the Chinese, they, they approached me, we don't know how to describe it except it's kind of the Chinese version of the Haunted Mansion. As soon as they said Haunted Mansion, I was like, I'm in. And it's in their <laughs> Disneyland, right? Yeah. And I said, I don't care what, you know, if there's another culture involved, there's the fact that it's inspired by the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. You know, just, I'm totally down for it. And it was just a great experience. I loved it. It was like 15 rooms, like the Haunted Mansion. The storyline is different because as I was telling you before, the, you know, the Chinese culture doesn't work the same way around ghosts being scary, things like that. And so it's, it's an enchanted evil kind of spirit is inhabiting all the stuff and everything's coming alive and um, composing a continual piece of music for the 15 rooms, 14, 15 rooms, especially, you know, because I do all my own mixing. I mean, with an engineer, of course, but I've never not mixed any of my own soundtracks and uh, getting in the, the ground and spending a week in uh, Hong Kong mixing this piece like room by room with this elaborate computerized multi-channel system. It's not like stereo. It's like 20 something channels of, of stereo, wow. which was like the Cirque show I did at the Kodak, I think at 22 channel stereo. Jeez. And so I would stay up every night after the show ended. I was always there between 11 and two. You know, we'd be working on the sound for a month. Wow. I was there for wow. every show making notes. And then we bring up this elaborate mixing system and like, let's play with moving these strings. Let's move that part there. Let's move this off to the sides. Let's put something else in the back. And uh, until finally it came together, unfortunately, that show is not there anymore. Now in Mystic Manor, there's even a painting of you. You're part of the ride. Well, the, the best part, <laughs> and, and I kind of asked for this, the three singing kind of like, in this case, it's like armor. Okay. Yeah. And it reminded me of the heads that you pass and, yep. they're, <laughs> and they're singing the song. So. I kind of did the same thing That's and great. it's really fun because the three are like singing that <laughs> as close as I can get to that kind of cadence and that kind of part, but it had to be sung in English, Cantonese and uh, Mandarin. Oh, wow. Or as we called it there, Putinois. Mm -hmm. They don't actually say Mandarin in uh, Shanghai. So do you wear headphones and get to pick your audio no, feed or how does that work? No, no. We had, I sang all the English parts, yeah. multi-track. Then we had these two groups come in, one from Beijing doing the, uh, the Mandarin and, and then a Hong Kong gang coming in and doing uh, the Cantonese. Wow. And wow. Uh, it's funny because they were like so different. Like these Hong Kong guys came in and they were just like having fun and <laughs> being crazy. <laughs> and like they were like really. And then the, the guys came in from Beijing and they're all like serious singers and doing this job. And they were sent over and, you know, I would try to like loosen them up and say, be crazier with this part. It's like, no. <laughs> you know, these are like, I have a feeling they were like opera singers, Chinese opera oh, singers. Oh, yeah, sure. Singers. Yeah, yeah. The know, best of the best. Best of the they best. They were yeah. like, you know, so they were heavy duty. Probably because in Hong Kong, they got so many crazy low budget movies and scores and stuff happening. You know, there's a much more of a kind of scene of being like seedier pants <laughs> yeah. and doing stuff in more of the way that I'm used to. Right. So, but it was great. They were all really good. Depending on when you pass these characters, they'll be singing in one of the three languages. So it just, it's a kind of continual loop. Oh, so oh, amazing. Wow. wow. One of your scores I really enjoy is the Woodstock one. Bang Lee. And the guitar, a lot of great guitar work. I was curious if that's you. No, no. If it sounds really good, <laughs> it's definitely not me. Um, especially acoustic. Right, but you wrote it, obviously. Yeah, but I'm not an accurate, you know, I could pick up an electric guitar and get the sounds I want out of it. But when it comes to really nice acoustic playing, 
I'm definitely so not you the probably, guy for you it. Because it has a whole like universe. It has no, there, a, there's a, a guy a I've been working with for years who plays all my acoustic guitar. So would you play that on piano and stuff? Yeah, play oh, exactly. Oh, okay. You know, acoustic guitar, I only played rhythm on stage for all those years. So I can play chords and I can play really loud and aggressively, <laughs> but I never did like finger picking. style. And right. yeah. yeah. So like the first time when I was working on Goodwill Hunting and me and Elliot Smith and Gus, we all sat in the basement kind of all with acoustic guitars playing. It was so great because Gus is actually a pretty good uh, guitar player and Elliot oh. was amazing. Yeah. And so I was kind of playing my ideas and Elliot would play a little bit of the songs he was working on. Gus would play. It was a real magical moment. If you hear nice acoustic guitar on any of my scores, no. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> but if you hear feedback, if you ever hear like something that's feeding back or sound like it's bending out of tune, you know it's me. <laughs> I had a question off Leo's question of process about where in the process of scoring do you start, do you meet with the director and start? I know everyone's probably different. Well, it's early on, obviously, um, you know, before, actually, sometimes it's before the movie is made and sometimes it's after. That's always different. But you see, either if there's a movie to look at, then they'll show you the movie, assuming very often there's nothing but a script and a prayer. <laughs> Please, God. Don't let this movie suck. <laughs> because, you know, with any film, you know, the odds are, with odds are, with when a really good film gets made, it's a small miracle. It absolutely. It really is. Yeah. And uh, nobody ever sets out to make a bad film. I've said this a million times. You know, I've worked on a lot of bad films. There's a lot of bad films out there. Nobody ever tries to make a bad film. Everybody puts their heart into it. And sometimes it just doesn't come together, right? You know, some part sure. of it just isn't happening and uh, there has to be like a, an incredible chemistry alchemy almost to make a movie really work but so often it's a script and like i said a script and a prayer <laughs> uh, occasionally there's a movie done you know i get called in late or sometimes i've even rescoring a film that's already been scored when i did silver lining playbook for example there was a film already there and for some reason all of a sudden they thought of me and i was like oh i'm looking at an almost finished film oh, wow. Wow. and i just jumped in and did it and did it have a temp score at the time it did but i don't remember what it was oh. You know, and I kind of came up with this idea of using my voice. For some reason, I was like listening to Beach Boy harmonies at that time. And I was thought, gotta be fun to use like just harmony, yeah. vocal thing. Haven't done that really in a score. And David was like down with that. You know, that kind of became a thing. fits perfectly it's very hand in glove that yeah. music because Thanks. it's such a specific tone the movie's such an oddly specific tone yeah yeah it's a very odd tone and that's why i was happy to do it because you know the odder the tone the happier i am <laughs> <laughs> it's true i mean i learned early on to avoid romantic comedies because i don't know what to do in them you know it's like it's normal they're normal people and i don't know what kind of music just to put behind normal people you know being normal it's like I just don't know that universe. Right. And, you know, there are other composers who could just write and write and write so easily, that kind of stuff. And for me, that's the biggest struggle of writing of anything is a light romantic comedy. That'll be the hardest film I have to do. So the more offbeat it is, 
the more comfortable I am with it. Well, you do like challenging yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. But when I saw Silver Lining, I said, no, no these characters are just twisted enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. Effed up enough <laughs> for me to get my teeth into it. And so that was a kind of an exception. You know, some films, you leave humming the main theme. And sometimes the music just plays underneath all of the emotion, you know, just kind of scooting along, leading the audience. Yeah, but I really believe in thematic writing. I believe if you don't give a film score something that they could hang on to, that if they hear it the next day, that's the score. I, that's the movie I just saw last night. You should be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. If you can't, you haven't done your job. Yeah. You're, that means it's just lazy composing. I but, can still hum the Superman theme song from when I was a kid. Oh my God. You know, you know I got to play with that in the Justice League. Use John, yeah. I got permission to use oh. John Williams' theme. And that was so much fun. <laughs> it was just like handling precious piece, like precious, you know, artifact and... Well, same, you know, I got to do re-record Psycho, Bernard Herrmann. It's like, when I, when I get something like that, I just try to be really respectful. Mm, sure. With John's film uh, score, I got to take it and turn it around dark because, you know, I was mainly, Superman was mainly a dark character at that right, right. point. We didn't know. And I just love doing that. That that was some of the most fun I had. That might be my favorite part of Justice League. <laughs> that little thing, yeah. The music, I have to say, the music was fun, you know? I got to revisit Superman and Batman in the same movie. I was in hog heaven, man. Anytime I get to write more variations on anything somebody else has done or I've done, I really have a good time with it. I like doing variations. Yeah. So I loved taking John's theme and turning it a different direction and like taking Batman and stretching it out and doing stuff with it. I just love doing variations on themes. I could just do it forever. It's nice when a cinematic universe has a musical thread. Yeah, as well it should. I mean, you'd think, my God, have they've not learned any lessons from Star Wars. <laughs> right, yeah, totally. <laughs> or Mission Impossible. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the two that were smart enough to like go, you know what? Musical identity, actually, audiences enjoy it. And when you cut that off, you've got a franchise that's going for a long time and you cut it off, the, the film can do really well, but it's an insult in the sense that you're just depriving them of one thing that they would love even more. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think it was really smart in Mission Impossible and James Bond. Yeah, James um, Bond. Making sure to do homage to those things, it always gives the audience a thrill and in star wars they were never going to fuck that up right yeah. and smartly so you know lucas was for like going no 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 there's no reason to start all over on and this. i'm sure the new indiana jones is going to have a, a whole ton of it yeah it should because you can still make it fresh yeah yeah and it didn't matter whether it was star wars it was a reboot different actors different things it's still emotionally it's yeah. coming from the same place so yeah. why not give your audience just even a moment of like uh play it yeah just like give them that thing and and so when I did Mission Impossible, the first one, De Palma said to me, you know, for this scene, we're, you know, we're going to play the theme. I said, great. <laughs> I said, you'd be a fool not to. I enjoyed doing it. You know, it's a great theme. It still hit like the Mission Impossible 6 was so much fun and they still play it. Yeah. They're smart. You get that. Yeah. And yeah. the James Bond theme every time. Smart. Every it's just, time. It's just smart. It it's understands your audience as opposed to just like uh, what I think is arrogant of like, no, it's a reboot. We want no connection <laughs> right. with this. It's d different actors. It's just total. There's no connection. There's no connection. <laughs> to me, that's just the director's arrogance of going, if you're following in a, a line, a tradition. But you're saying there's it's arrogant people in Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just think it's insecurity. It's like, no, we can't touch on that. Right. Because it's like, sure, you can. Give them one moment where you open up that piece of music that they love 
and just play it even once and they will thank you for it. And you can still establish all the new identity that you want. I just really believe in that stuff. People love when they tap into these little bits of thing that music has a way to get into your emotional kind of emotional hook into you almost like nothing else can. That's why so many people have like songs from their college years or from their youth that means so much to them. A theme from a film, a song, it could get under your skin and it becomes part of your whole DNA in a way. To have something continuing in the line of that and not get that moment is just really depriving you of that one thing of like, oh yeah, that feels so good. Hearing Mission Impossible now, just for this moment, feels so good. Why would you not do that? Totally agree. Say like maybe 10 years ago, if we wanted to hear one of your scores, it'd be very difficult. But because of uh, the streaming services now, you know, we can access even the obscure, the ones that didn't do as well in the box office, like mm. the Woodstock movie we were talking about. Yeah. I love it. As a fan of yours, how do you feel about the streaming services? And I no, think it look, I think anybody that gives it. access to this stuff, yeah. you know, it's not like when you write a film score and you get a soundtrack album out, except again, it's a one in a million thing that actually has like a big hit and you actually see money from it. It's like, I'm never going to see money from these things. It doesn't matter. I want the music to be out there. So, you know, it's film music. It's not like song and my livelihood isn't selling this record, yeah. you know, or I'm going to starve, you know, I've already been paid. I've already done my work. At that point, I really want a soundtrack out there just to get it out there. I want people to have it. And it used to be difficult to get them. Whatever. So if streaming yeah. makes that more accessible, I'm all for it. I love that. You know, I want people to be able to easily go out there and stream some, they heard about some weird, obscure score I did to some film you know, 20 years ago. Mm. And like uh, uh, goosebumps. <laughs> no, I love that a little, one. A little uh, sooner than 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, but goosebumps is great, man. Mm-hmm. No, thanks. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's like um, having access to that early, the Midnight hard run. to get How stuff. about Midnight Run? Okay, yeah. Midnight yeah. Run. Yeah. Yeah. That's a I love great Midnight Run. You know, so you may not find that <laughs> yeah, yeah, album right. very easily, yeah, but, right. um, you know, if you could stream it and you, mm. you heard somebody says, oh, you should check out that score and you could just go and pick yeah. it and stream it. Like, great. I think it's great. Well, like, I'm just happy right now if somebody heard heard this interview and said, oh, I never heard Girl on a Train and can stream <laughs> it and like check it out. It's like, great. I don't yeah. care if I make any money from that. I, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I just like people to like check it out. <laughs> I'd like to know what's your fondest memory of Halloween as a kid? My fondest memory, my daughter Molly was, I think, oh, probably about 13 or something. I went full Quasimodo. <laughs> <laughs> I did, uh, you know, prosthetic, a makeup on the face, got one eye down, you know, much lower. <laughs> and I had this thing over me and a big rope tied around me and the idea is that she was holding the rope and i would go out and run at kids and she would <laughs> me back. But unfortunately for me she was just at that age where it was getting embarrassing for her oh. so she's like dad oh dad come on come molly just yank the rope <laughs> give me the cue yank the rope <laughs> kids will love it oh dad just one of the, there's a certain point you know with kids where they just wish you were a normal parent it just kind of happens and then you know, later than they think. Oh, no, well, as a horror fan, is there um, a film that you go to that, like, is your comfort horror film that maybe you just pop in because you want to experience that? Even you know, you- if I'm just like flipping around and there's going to be a film that's going to come on that's going to grab me every time, you know, and I say, I'm just going to watch five minutes of this. I'm on a break, you know, and I'm just going through. It's The Shining. 
still. Yeah. That's a good one. You know, it's like, I'll say, I'm just going to watch five minutes and then 40 minutes later, think, <laughs> yeah. like, I have to go back to work. This, this was a 10 minute break. <laughs> but it's so hypnotizing yeah. and uh, so brilliantly made. It's just hard to stop. But it's like all of Kubrick's films are like that. You know, it's like you happen into one. It's just kind of hard to stop watching it. Yeah, they suck you in. Have you seen that documentary, Room 237? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah. All of those crazy theories seem for a moment almost plausible. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way they present them. Yeah. Yeah, as they're talking. Statement about the Indians. Yeah, well, of course. I guess, there, yeah, there's no moon landing. <laughs> he did direct the moon landing. <laughs> Or the one he did uh, about his boxes, all the stuff he cleaned. Yeah, Kubrick's boxes. That's a cool one. Kubrick's yeah, boxes. Yeah, it's a documentary, BBC documentary about that. his yeah, personal he... archive that he kept. Oh, it was intense. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'll check Clockwork that out. Orange, she spent a year just taking photos and collecting, up, like parking garages and stuff. Yeah, you know? just photos. He had a guy, he would send out one of his assistants just to take photos of things, thousands of photos, and they kept them all in these boxes. Well, just to note, to illustrate what a Kubrick fan I have always been, when I was 19 and I was coming back from a year in West Africa where I'd been traveling and I was really sick, I'd had malaria many times and oh, yeah. I finally had hepatitis and I said, all right, it's time to go home. <laughs> and I, I got a charter flight. I'd crossed through West and Central Africa and I ended up in Nairobi and went home. But I had a one evening stop over in London and then next morning flying to Los Angeles and Clockwork Orange was out while I was in Africa and it was the one thing I was really pissed <laughs> that I couldn't see this film out of wait and so even with sick as I was and weak it's like I went out to the theater <laughs> and I saw Clockwork Orange I wasn't gonna wait an nice. extra day <laughs> I recently saw that in the cinema and it's shocking how loud that film is all that orchestra music what well, are you talking about The Shining or the no, Clockwork uh, Orange uh, Clockwork Orange well Clockwork Orange was uh, Wendy Carlos did that score based you know on classical stuff but there was yeah. a lot of reimagining classical like Beethoven done on synthesizers it was real kind of revolutionary at the time Wendy Carlos was I mean even now sometimes when I'm doing a synth score which I love doing like the circle I did last year the year before and he wanted a retro sound it's like I go okay I gotta listen to my Wendy Carlos <laughs> Tangerine Dream you know these are like the early kind of pioneer film scores but really the Clockwork Orange was the first that way that really took synthesized scoring and turned it into like more high art rather than that. just something that was trashy on a low budget film yeah, all we can afford Tangerine it. Dream and then like Noi or like Kraftwerk and a lot of the German stuff well know? yeah there was a lot of great German stuff although not much of that in film and I guess Marauder was doing definitely some interesting stuff and uh, what was that film that was all oh, I can't remember the kid in the Turkish prison. Uh, Midnight Express. Midnight Express. Yeah. Thank you. You know, that that was one of those kind of scores. And it, wow. That's like a whole new thing. But Wendy Carlos uh, did Clockwork Orange and worked on the, the opening of The Shining, for example, because The Shining is all classical music. Right. Except for the opening. Mm -hmm. And Wendy Carlos is reimagining a famous piece of classical music, but did it in an all synthesized way. As they're driving up that hill. Yeah, so cool. And it's so perfect. Yeah. And then this weird voice, kind of weird voice thing, which I tried to pay a slight homage to if you listen to Dark Shadows. There's some moments oh. where you hear some like kind of like warbling of a voice. And that's me <laughs> trying to do as best I could, like that thing that Wendy Carlos did in, yeah. in The Shining. Nice. And Tim's like, what is that? <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> so it's kind of buried in there a couple That's of moments. Cool. In That's awesome. Dark shadows. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a turkey? <laughs> no, that's me. Like, leave me alone. Don't worry about it. 
<laughs> All right, Danny, this has been a real hey, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can't tell you how much I appreciate it, man. Well, I'm going to get back to literally writing the last cues for Dumbo. Wow. Tonight and two more days wow. to finish, and I'm not done yet. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we've influenced, uh, maybe we've influenced yeah. Dumbo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have a question. Have you ever played the piano with one of your severed hands? Ooh. <laughs> uh, no, my, the hand in the Beast of Five Fingers was the hand of a pianist. Oh. It turns out Peter Lorre had killed and the hand was coming back and haunting him and it played the piano. And that was the, the really great part was that he'd hear the piano playing and he goes, but I've killed him. <laughs> and, um, and he'd walk in the room and there's the hand with the bone sticking out of the wrist, like playing the piece of music, the Bach. Wow. And that was like, oh my God, that is so cool. <laughs> you know, and doing that in those days was no easy feat. Oh, yeah. By the way, you know, when I saw movies as a kid, they were regenerated from previous years and we didn't know that. If you're going to come up with a double bill every weekend, you're not going <laughs> to, right. you know, yeah. right. Yeah. So, like, when I saw The Day the Earth Stood Still, I didn't realize till later, it was out 10 years before I was born. Right, right. When I saw The Beast with Five Fingers, probably more so. I yeah. think that was actually before I was born, and I think it was the late 40s. 40s, actually. yeah, yeah. So, I was watching them on the screen just like it was a new movie. That's you know, Day the Earth Stood Still, so that's cool. the movie that's out that was this week. Right. And, um, no, they were just repackaging stuff from other decades, from other countries, dub movies. So, you know, it was like this real kind of overall horror history of eras and countries. Eyes Without a Face was, of course, yeah. in French, oh, although we didn't yeah. know that. And we were yeah. watching Dario Argento movies that were dubbed from Italian, right. kind of redone for us, you know. That was kind of an interesting thing. We didn't have, like, TV playing these movies all the time that you would know. Right. Oh, I've right. seen Day of the Earth Still on television a million times. Yeah, there's nowhere right. to reference any of yeah. it, right? Exactly. Wait, am I remembering now, did you work on Army of Darkness? Well, <laughs> oddly enough, everything is a story. <laughs> We're still rolling. Yeah. Uh, two people saw Evil Dead 2 and became lifelong fans. One was me and one was Bridget Fonda. And both of us tried out for Darkman. I got the part she didn't, you know, went to Rand McDormand, but she tried. And then come Army of Darkness, she offered her services as a for free to do like a cameo. And I offered my services for for a dollar, you know, because I still have these dollars. Like, really? oh, dollars. wow. So I wrote a theme for him for a dollar. Just, you know, we were basically just trying to help by putting our names on yeah, the movie because, yeah. you know, it was a low budget film and he was struggling putting it together. And we just loved Sam and we hadn't met. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it was on two films later of Sam's simple plan mm -hmm. that we finally met. Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. wow. What a sweet story. Yeah, but it turns out, like, you did a thing for Army of Dragons. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> you love Sam? Yeah, I love Sam. It's really nice. You tried out for Dark Man? <laughs> well, I didn't try out. I guys got the job. Yeah. Was Army of Darkness the one that has the homage to Day the Earth Stood Still? Or is that Evil Dead 2? Uh, Am I conflating those? He has, because I remember... like a musical cue no, or something? No, he, he says the words that... Uh, oh, no, no, that's not the music. That's the uh, incantation. Yeah, yes. Plato Verata. Right, right. Nick yeah, exactly. Day. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's uh, Evil Dead. Well, okay. it's that's actually whole, Evil Dead. It's all of the Evil Dead. Yeah, all the universe. Oh, yeah, okay, that's yeah. like he took that. But uh, my musical homage was more like to classic old B-movie yeah, yeah. horror 
stuff. You know, sure. I just really wanted to write uh, something that had. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it was really more an homage to Creature of the Black Lagoon. Oh, sure, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, look, don't get me started. This is more <laughs> <laughs> we'll pretend. do a whole uh, <laughs> yeah. whole month long yeah, series. Get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, we're holding up Dumbo. Yeah, we're holding, <laughs> holding up Dumbo. But I could approve it too, and that's exactly what I'll do. Eureka! I've got it! This is Danny Elfman and the Boo Crew wishing you Happy Halloween. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 27. A very special thanks to Danny Elfman and his tremendous team. Do not miss Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas with full orchestra and choir live to picture at the Hollywood Bowl and Danny Elfman reprising the singing role of the iconic Jack Skellington. It's for the 25th anniversary of the film and is going to be absolutely magical. It runs October 26th to 28th. The 27th is sold out, so grab your tickets at Ticketmaster.com while you still can. Before you head over to the Bowl, during the day, the Boo Crew will be over at LA Comic Con. We have a booth there, shirts for sale, and some free stuff to hook you up with. Screen use, movie props to look at, too. Please come say hey. ComicConLA.com for tickets. The promo code Boo Crew gets you 10% off. Look at that. Till next time, Trev for the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. It's time for this boogeyman to boogie.